Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity worlds where we're all at home quarantined. We know that working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back again to our podcast. I'm a little more overcast in London this morning, but uh, welcome back to Alex and Kerry, who are joining myself in the office. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, and a big shout out to Tom, who it's his birthday today, so we have uh, excused him and not allowed him to uh, come onto the podcast this week. But so uh, the rest of us will cope. Right, let's dive in straight into the news stories that have caught our eye this week. Kerry, let's start with you. You've uh, got a story about... Uh, yeah. gracious Prime Minister. Exactly. Uh, he made a big announcement yesterday, which amounted to build, build, build. Uh, this is actually, I'm quoting from the BBC story here, that this can be found on a major website. Uh, um, and I think what's interesting about this is it's the first sign, concrete sign, of what I think will become a major trend, which is the Western countries, for the first time in a very long time, realizing that fiscal stimulus direct investment in infrastructure is the only way out of this um, this particular crisis. Job creation is going to come to the fore. And so they're going to follow what has until now been basically a Chinese plan of, uh, of massive infrastructure projects to employ vast numbers of people. You know, Boris directly quoted FDR, you know, and talked about this being a New Deal style project. I think that's highly debatable in terms of the scale of it versus the New Deal. But... Um, but the reality is it's the right thing to do, and I think it will ignite a trend both in Europe and perhaps after the U.S. election in the U.S. where people realize we're going to be building railways, good old-fashioned infrastructure projects uh, all over the country. Um, this is the time to borrow. This is the time to invest. And this is the time to have the state sponsoring job creation which is probably the only way to get the uh, the recovery we want. Yeah, it was his yeah. big call for uh, shovel-ready projects. There's <laughs> exactly. loads of people standing around there with shovels ready to go. But it's somewhat different. Something you picked up uh, several weeks ago, the, the ironic point that China's not announced loads of new infrastructure. Exactly. It's kind of opposite now. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, uh, the, there's a number of questions raised by that, not least of which, you know, does China feel that because of their previous investment over the past couple of decades, they, they're hitting a limit in terms of debt to GDP ratios, um, or do they feel they simply don't need to? They can stimulate domestic consumption, consumer consumption in a different way. Um, we'll have to see how that plays out. But this is a, an exact reversal of roles, basically, with uh, with the Western countries now, I expect, uh, moving into that role of, of good old-fashioned, yeah, shovel-ready projects. Give it a, give I, can, it a I can remember an amazing statistic about uh, Chinese developments previous years, the noughties, boom years, that they were building something like 15 new large airports every year. So I think maybe they've run out of um, airport capacity. They don't need it anymore, <laughs> Exactly. Perhaps. Exactly. One wonders how many more high-speed trains they can possibly build. Yeah, just for so, the sake of it. Exactly. Cool. Well, exactly. let's move on to Monsieur Le President and Alex. Um, from one premier to another, what is uh, he talking about? Right. Well, this is a story for the New York Times. And it is uh, about Macron and how he's having, well, sort of having his arm twisted, having to pledge billions for climate. Um, the Greens made significant gains in the second round of the French elections, especially in Strasbourg, Lyon, Bordeaux. Um, and as a result, I think Macron's feeling the pressure a little bit. 
He already sort of suffered at the hands of the yellow vests and their protests over the last couple of years, where his green agenda was was knocked off track um, in regards to an opposition to a fuel tax that he was planning to put in. So he seems to be fighting the battle from both sides. Um, And one of his sort of measures to take this on is that he's promised 15 billion euros in new climate related financing. Um, He's going to have to probably do something a bit more dramatic and probably fight a bit more shrewdly to see off the attack from both sides. But much in the same way as um, Boris's government spending is going to perhaps set a new trend, I think people's quality of life has improved, albeit rather cynically, as a result of COVID-19 reducing industrialization. And, you know, there's going to be a push for uh, greater climate care. And so perhaps his 15 billion euros worth of spending sets a domino effect across Europe and across the US. And we see governments allocating more funds to a, a greener spending. Yeah, I guess it's worth noting that uh, his his party did did okay. I guess it's not that the Greens are totally rampaging yeah. around. His party is okay, but it's imagine this is part of his his attempt to renew the enthusiasm for, <laughs> for the centre ground in Indeed, in, yeah. in France. But uh, we'll see exactly what that uh, comes about and what economic impact that has on that. I'm sure it's a, a thing which has come about. We've talked about it numerous times that the resultant fact of climate change, the impact from a lot of countries and how you get yourself out of an economic lull that we've had yeah. because of, of the virus, but still noting that you cannot go on the same way things are going and not plough straight into an even worse crisis with a, with, a, with a climate change crisis. So moving swiftly on to something else, I've picked up a couple of articles, but we're linked in that we're seeing some geopolitical instability uh, come about. And this is picking up on the story about the implementation of Hong Kong's new security law and about the border dispute between India and China. So for those who've not read the articles, this comes from, both come from the FT. Uh, We've noted previously about Hong Kong's new law. This has now been passed and they're implementing it. I think we've seen five arrests so far being reported. Uh, The disbanding of the pro-democracy groups that have caused, uh, you know, all those mass rallies, uh, the umbrella rallies which were in 2014 that started a lot of this uh, and questions over the two system one country uh, settlement since uh, the giving back to to China from Britain in 97. So that's all kicking off and a lot of this is about uh, an issue I think we brought it up last week China asserting more of its control in terms of global politics now. The, the US yeah. has retreated we talked about you know Trump Absolutely. America first doesn't want to get involved uh, we had previous administration Obama about his pivot to the east, but that seems to have fallen completely away. Uh, and now this is, and you can see that in the other story with the dispute uh, with India on the, you know, I think they have yeah. a, they have a three thousand four hundred eighty eight kilometer border, China and India. Obviously, a lot of it is impassable with the Himalayas, but we've had uh, a dispute which has resulted in the death of twenty Indian soldiers. Uh, and, and never let impractical geography get in the way of a good old-fashioned nationalistic dispute. Uh, we've seen this with rocky yeah. islands all over the world. Uh, so, <laughs> Exactly. And, and the, I guess the result has been and Modi, uh, Premier Modi, has been pushing this agenda now. And you've seen from the protests uh, that have been uh, somewhat different. Normally you see the burning of flags. Uh, the Indian protests were smashing Chinese-made electrical equipment. So it's a little bit different in terms of how they have displayed that anger of what's happened. But it's a difficult one for India because they have a large share of their economy is based on Chinese imports. You know, you're looking around about 15%. Yeah. 
uh, and obviously they have that deficit fact that they're they are exporting a little bit more um, from a, a kind of a drop that happened in 2015 from highs which are just around 2012. But you know, this is a, a start of Chinese trying to assert themselves. We talked about the Belt and Road Initiative yeah. previously. What are they going to do next? Are they going to well, dislocate things? And Hong Kong's also uh, you know, and this is. Two things about this that are interesting is one, this is just a return to good old fashioned 19th century geopolitical uh, maneuver by force. You know, this is this is uh, the type of uh, the type of territorial disputes and moves that would be recognized at the Congress of Vienna. Um, you know, um, uh, and so this is uh, we're, we're entering an era where I think China is aware of this trend that was already underway of somewhat of economic decoupling let's call it, um, with the rest of the world. Uh, this was a trend underway already with Apple starting to move some production, for example, to Mexico from China, their iPhone well before this pandemic or any of these trade wars flared up um, um, with a lot of countries desiring a more diversified uh, supply chain than, than simply just China. And I think China's taking the calculation here, especially with Hong Kong, that, uh, that they're going to effectively pay the price of this decoupling anyway, so there's absolutely no reason to cater to Western interests anymore. Um, and nothing could be more symbolic of that than the, the revocation of Hong Kong's freedom and independence as a, as a trading port and a meeting, and a meeting point of, uh, of, of, of West meets East banking, really. Yeah, and especially well, resultant on a lot of the currencies that we're just about to go on to talk to, as China, which has been such a driver of many factors, yeah. such a big buyer, uh, the, as you talk about the, the changing nature of uh, where things are coming from, where things are being produced, low wages, the increasing wealth of the middle class in China, that kind of change yeah. of, of things will have a knock-on effect to a lot of these commodities. So look, why don't we go on to talk to about what have we seen in terms of market movements for our, for our major markets this week? Kerry, do you want to start with us on, uh, on Iowa? Uh, sure, absolutely. Uh, the iron ore has actually been looking a little bit peaky lately. Um, you know, we, we've been, it's been the one commodity that has been consistently and against expectations bullish throughout this entire crisis. Um, it, after moving sideways just about the whole week, uh, the front end paper started to drop yesterday. So the physical index, the plus 62% index, uh, is at 101.05, just down from 102.50 at this time last week. Uh, but the July contract is trading down at uh, 98 and a half already, which is nearly a $4 drop yesterday. Um, although it only looks down a dollar on the week since it was trading 99 and a half this time last week. Um, so watch this space. Uh, but, you know, for the first time, we're seeing uh, a flattening and, and, and some slight bearish moves, um, which is, again, in contrast to the physical cape market, which continues to push up. Uh, the index now $30,857, uh, about two grand up on last week this time. So not the same dramatic moves we've seen, but, uh, but still very, very punchy. Um, it is worth noting on that Cape size freight that the paper has not followed this and has not kept pace. It's actually trading down a bit over the last few days um, with July trading at $24,500, discount on that July contract, which bear in mind starts pricing today. So um, there will have to be some convergence there mm. at some stage. I guess that kind of move up, positive movement on the Capes 
has also been reflected in a kind of positive view, which we were somewhat negative to flat last week uh, on the crude markets. So we've this morning tipped back above 42, slow crawl up and recovery of prices and OPEC are rubbing their hands going, oh, things are going exactly. a bit better than they were. Some things to note in terms of the products as well. So this morning's window, the 0.5% prices, uh, the spreads have taken an absolute hammering really come off uh, on things. So we had previously noted about the, the old grade of fuel, the high sulfur fuel oil, that that had flattened and gone into liquidation. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing a move towards that on some of the other products now as well. Uh, you're seeing that flattening uh, of the 0.5. Uh, we've already seen it with, with the Rotterdam, the European high sulfur fuel oil, the Singapore high sulfur fuel oil is getting closer towards that. So I imagine that this trend will probably continue. As demand returns, we've been talking about that. You know, when will we get back to that kind of level of, of oil demand, yeah. demand normality with people going back to work, driving more? We talked about the driving season, the increase it was over two hundred percent in China use of, of cars. That will obviously bring in a lot of demand for diesel, other products, uh, gasolines, uh, and the kind of moving of all the storage that has been done in in that kind of two months of well, we don't need anything anymore. Uh, during Indeed, the crisis, yeah. everyone was at home. So some interesting movements that are going to happen, and I imagine we will move back into that, that backward-dated curve of, of normality of, uh, of an oil structure on things. Cool. So supply-wise... Um, in terms of supply on, on iron ore, what's interesting to see is um, the, the, the market is finally factoring in, uh, to some degree, these announcements, these consistent announcements by Vale that, you know, they would make their production target this year. Now, uh, it's worth noting that Brazil shipments uh, of iron ore were up 1.96 million tons week on week last week. So, you know, it's clear that they are making some efforts here. Um, the Aussies, as I mentioned last week, are also pushing out uh, as much incremental increase as they can uh, and have been uh, lead up to today, uh, which was the end of their financial year, or mm-hmm. yesterday rather. Um, and it's, I should note that the Chinese port stocks were up by 1.64 million tons week on week as well. That's the first rise in Chinese port stocks of iron ore since uh, the 24th of April, I believe. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to see um, uh, that those port stocks are rising just as supply fears begin to ease. Now, it remains to me at best unclear, let's say, if Vale can really meet their target this year. But uh, but uh, they are certainly pulling out all the stops to try and increase production. How, how reactive is Vale's produ- uh, production in, in correlation to political instability in, in Brasilia? Well, it traditionally has not been too reactive to political instability in and of itself. Um, whether, it's not, whether or not it's more reactive to the, the ever-worsening COVID crisis there and whether that actually physically forces them you know, to limit production in certain areas, we just don't know yet. Uh, but we're certainly not seeing that at the moment. They are managing to actually increase production despite some hiccups along the way. So uh, so let's see what happens over the next few weeks. But it still is quite a significant increase they would need to match those promises. Yes, it is. It's worth noting that even the increase they achieved last week would not be close to enough to meet that target uh, on shipments of uh, 310 to 330 total. So um, all Christmas total. holidays are cancelled yeah. until yeah, it's fulfilled. Exactly. So... So we need to watch and wait and see. Um, and, you know, that, that, that increase, I should note, is also what's driving, you know, demand, obviously, on the capes and has kept them very high. Um, uh, you know, especially out of that Brazil, that C3 route continues to fix in the region of 21 and a half bucks, uh, maybe even close to 22. Um, 
you know, when the Panamaxes have softened a bit, um, they just haven't seen nearly as much demand from either Atlantic or Pacific recently. Uh, and rates have been consolidating there, but the capes remain exceptionally strong on the physical, uh, driven almost entirely by that, that Brazil demand. But you're talking about um, freight demands. If you look at also yeah. tankers uh, on, on the demand, we touched briefly, I think, in terms of the storage and the fact that that floating storage is now coming back into the markets. Uh, they're obviously selling all the cargoes which they held. Uh, prices have moved up, so that was a, a nice trade for yeah. them, I guess, is a, a way of putting it. So increasing the number of those uh, VLs in the market, uh, which is, if you look at the TD3 rates, which is the um, Arab Gulf to, to China route, yeah. we, we're looking at mid-30s on the world scale now, when this had been you know, much, much higher. World scale, 223 <laughs> on the 16th of March, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. So you've seen that huge impact of one which was... Uh, in March, which was the price war between you know Saudis, how much can we pump? And then yeah. the crisis hit. Uh, everyone went into storage, be that onshore and using of, of ships as well. But now that's all coming back into the market. So we're kind of opposite to what we've seen in, in the Atlantic for, for the Brazil trade of, of Capes going, well, that's really pushed up those rates because no one really wants to balance across to do that, what you've noted previously, yeah. kind of opposite. And then if you couple that, what I was going to say in terms of supply on oil for, for OPEC cuts, we're actually seeing some real evidence of it, which is something Refreshing. to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, than, uh, uh... Random numbers throwing out there. So um, this is from Petro Logistics. Uh, they're a tracking company, tanker tracking company. Uh, and they've noted that OPEC have cut some 1.25 million barrels a day. This is for June. Okay. So if you couple those two together, you've got an increase in number of uh, the VLs there. And we're not got as many cargoes. It's, it's a huge stat. That's a very clever way to go about it, isn't it, as well? I like a lot of them. That's a really good one. So that's kind of, you know, both together are causes of that crisis. Now you see the resultant exactly. effect on those uh, those tanker rates. Um, but even the US as well, uh, crude output has, um, this is from the EIA, is now fallen 5.3% month to month. Yeah. Uh, that's only but just above 12 million barrels a day now, uh, which was pushing to new and new highs in the, in the glory days of the shale oil <laughs> at the end of last year. But no, that supply is, for oil, um, they've definitely cut. But what's helping a lot more, I guess, is what's happening in terms of, of demand. Yeah. And that coming back, a lot of this is coming from the reopening of, of economies, the demand for oil. Saudi Aramco saying demand is now at 90 million barrels per day. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, as an oil producer, you would definitely pump up those figures. Is it you, well, exactly. I was going to say a Saudi Aramco charging oil demand is not, I'm sure, yeah. I'm not necessarily the one I quote. Yes, yeah, it's a bit like, you know, weighing yourself yeah. and lying to <laughs> yourself at what number you, you exactly, got to on yeah. your diet. But uh, they are obviously predicting a, an increase in what's happening uh, with the opening of economies, 90 million barrels per day for, for oil. What is, uh, we've noted previously is the, the API, the American Petroleum Institute, uh, who usually produce a report um, on a Tuesday, which says what they predict the U.S. stock levels to be, and yep. they have come in this week to say it's going to fall by eight point one six million. So, uh, bearing a note, we've okay. had quite large bills previously. Yeah. Um, after having draws, by quite large bills, this does seem to indicate that demand is back in the U.S. There's a lot more throughput through those refineries that had closed because of the the storm uh, in the Gulf. Yeah. But it does build into a story. Uh, which we've noticed previously, uh, many of these stories um, which you can find uh, on our app, a premium content for things talking about refinery throughput, that China has obviously 
got back to those levels very quickly, but other countries are much slower in their efforts to, to get back to previous throughput through through refineries. But it does seem to point that the US are now coming back online with a lot more throughput, especially if that 8.16 million barrel draw is confirmed later by the by the EIA. Very much so. And conversely to that, on the iron ore side, I think it's worth noting from a demand perspective that uh, China's blast furnace utilization rate is actually at 93.42% this week, which is uh, a multi-year high. Um, and it's very difficult to see where it can go from here. A 100% utilization rate is effectively impossible because there will always be some furnaces down for maintenance, etc. cetera. Um, um, and so, you know, from from ninety three and a half percent, it's it's very very difficult to see that rate increasing. Um, it's the highest we've seen it for for really quite some time. Um, meanwhile, steel price in China has been roughly break even with the electric arc furnace production cost, um, and you could argue, okay, maybe we'll start to see some EAFs come offline. But even you know with the blast furnace production just exceeding demand right now, it's hard to see even cutting EAF production would push the steel prices up too much right now in China. Um, that really is a huge number. So, um, you know, we, we could be seeing sort of peak pig iron production right now in China, but let's let's watch that carefully. Yeah, and then talking of a Brazil we previously done, it's worth touching on some news from the, the fertilizer side. It does seem somewhat of a mixed picture of what's happening there. Uh, Brazil, Euro paper having a mixed week, sold down, uh, to lower physical sales early in the week, um, with lots more sales up to two hundred and fifty-five dollars being reported. So, Brazil is the epicenter not just of the escalating virus crisis with the numbers increasing, yeah, uh, but also of a lot of the factors which are pinning on a lot of uh, our commodities. That is true. Capes, the the fertilizer business, uh, measure the same with some of the the other routes in terms of C three, others which that comes from from to Brazil. So. Maybe we should perhaps do a little bit more uh, on the Brazil and present some more uh, a future future week because this is definitely probably something worth a conversation for sure. Definitely, definitely. Okay, noted for for a future episode. Uh, focus on on Brazil and what's happening there because it would definitely be good to get a bit more view because it is so important for the iron ore market for the, and therefore resulting capes and what things are happening on on the fertilizer business. So um, a, a point duly noted. But another thing which has happened in terms of the the oil markets of a product which has had a terrible time. Uh, is vacuum gas oil. This is something we picked up a couple of uh, days ago, is that um, because demand has collapsed so completely, uh, they're now changing the makeup of what they use to blend to create the new 0.5% contracts. Interesting. So just to give a bit of information on that, the VGO has now hit a price low of 2002, start of 2002, same levels. Uh, on April 27th, the spot was at $134. So bear in mind that you know, uh, very low sulfur fuel oil prices are now nearly just shy of $300 around about. And you're saying that gas oil, which is usually priced above, is $134 April. Yeah, that's a serious problem for, for people using that. So they've been using that to blend into the new 0.5% contracts because it would produce a better margin for them. So yeah. some changes to that. And then there's a resultant impact of that on things for the physical market, which I do not know as much about as I should do. Uh, just in terms of by changing those things, you're changing the the impact of the chemical properties of the fuel and how it reacts yeah. in, in the engine. So there could be some new news stories coming out. Interesting of to watch that. Things which you had yeah. in Singapore, <laughs> of, you know, 
problems of, of grades and the different blends. Now this is, is happening for uh, in Europe of, of VGO. So something else to, to note on that. Um, and one interesting observation uh, that I was discussing with Ed Hutton, um, our technical analyst here at, uh, at FIS, uh, uh, was just a quick observation on the Cape Size Index. Uh, and we'll be publishing an article on this shortly, uh, which will be available on the app uh, and the FIS Live site. But, um, you know, this is arguably on the Cape Size, the largest ever percentage gain Um uh, in one 32-day period, having moved 1,449% higher over the last 32 days. Um, numerically, the last time we saw a move like this, what's very interesting was during the uh, V-shaped recovery after the 2008 financial crisis, when it was bouncing back um, uh, after after that deep crisis. It's also worth noting that the, the Cape market coincidentally has been moving in seven-year cycles. Um, you had sort of seven years of feast uh, from 2006 to through to tw- through 2012, when the average 4TC index value was 52,464, uh, whereas from 2013 to 2019, we had seven years of fan and the average index value fell to 13,492. Um, this year, amidst a transformative global crisis, we're seeing the index average a much stronger level and move to levels we haven't seen in quite a long time, really. Um, and I think it's worth asking the question, you know, could this be the start of a larger cycle? Could this be the start of another major bull cycle on the Capes? Um, I'm sure it's music to every ship owner's ears, no doubt. But, uh, you know, we have a situation here, as we mentioned earlier, for example, where governments are going to be in, uh, in, in, sorry, investing in infrastructure much more significantly in the coming months and years. Um, what we do know is the global economy this time has had such a heart attack that most people feel that some significant CPR is needed to revive it. Um, those yep. direct fiscal injections are probably going to happen. And this coincides with moves we haven't seen on the Cape size market since the last super cycle. So that's probably worth just watching. Yeah, and some other points yeah. on the demand side. Um, again, back to to FERTS, India's buying's been below what was expected in the market uh, the past week. Uh, it was only able to secure six hundred twenty eight thousand tons in the most re- recent purchasing tender, uh, and then over to another market which we cover in terms of the the air freight. We noted previously the job losses, which yes. have continued. AsiaJet came out and said they're stopping. Uh, well, looking into stopping their operations at three UK airports. Uh, a lot of job losses have happened through that industry. And what uh, is noted this week is rising fuel costs for, mm-hmm. for air freight that if unhedged, uh, you know, this could definitely knock the kind of rates which have been happening, especially as, as passenger freight start coming back, where people are allowed to, to go uh, on holiday to, to fly. The talk of European well, they've got holiday bridges or passenger yeah. bridges, can't what they, what they call them. Air, air bridges. Air bridges that, to allow people without restriction yeah. to, to go. You will have what uh, I think, Kerry, you brought about in terms of regional areas opening up for that. So you, you're seeing this demand come back for, for passenger freight on the air freight. But if that, those rising fuel costs linked in with what we noted on the, on the oil, about OPEC cuts and exactly. you know, the products which we'll, we'll need. And, and the fact that refineries are not at the levels that they were producing previously could definitely have an impact on on those rates and profitability for companies which 
would are crying out for this ability to, to definitely. Make some and bear in mind, as we always expected, this is happening at almost exactly the time that you know those PPE shipments that have been driving the air freight market, you know, for the first half of this year really have uh, have started to tail off a little bit, at least into Europe. Um, you know that that China to Europe route, thankfully, no longer quite as heavily needed um, with PPE shipments keeping the market alive on air freight. So it'll be interesting to watch how all of this intersects. Um, yeah. Uh, talking about some other factors, which we may have uh, missed off, some emergency surgery has been done on a lot of the, the oil companies. Uh, we talked previously about uh, US oil companies going uh, insolvent because of the price collapse and the difficulty they've come into. We noted uh, previously about BP and its job cuts. They've come out, uh, I think it was yesterday, saying that um, they've sold off their petrochemicals business to Ineos. Interesting which I think is how Ineos first started, that they were originally sold BP's petrochemicals company, obviously made that into a profitable, profitable company, and now come back for <laughs> the second <laughs> slice of the pie. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, so they're obviously cutting that off, and that was, I think, part of uh, an asset cut, um, which they have actually hit their target a year early. Okay. It seems to have just, let's cut it off and, uh, and move on and try and to get back into business as it used to be. And the same is true of Shell, who come out this morning cut assets valued of about twenty-two billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, in in their in their business. So, so any other final news before we end for the week? Only that Demetrius from Perilous will be joining us next week for a special episode of this podcast. Uh, he's always entertaining to talk to, and we will be discussing, among other things, the financialization of the freight and iron ore markets, uh, the increased participation of hedge fund players and even systematics in the FFA market, as well as uh, our normal macro trends uh, on the freight, iron ore, fuel oil, and all the commodities we cover. Cool. Thank you very much, Kerry. So do tune in next week to uh, hear our special guest and the, what sounds like a fantastic discussion that's going to be happening between Kerry and his good self. Uh, but apart from that, thank you very much to Alex and Kerry for joining me again this week. Uh, happy birthday again to Tom and to everyone listening. Do join us next week. Thank you. Thanks, Rich. Thanks a lot.